Ethiopians that only one issue remains to be dealt with in the next presidential election. Obviously, this is from March 24, 2004, sorry. Um, is the United States for or against homosexual marriage? I'm going to tell you some news. No, I'm not running for president, although I do know that a sentence, if it is to be complete, must have a subject and a verb. Nor will I confess that I sleep with my children. I will say this, though. My wife is by far the oldest person I've ever slept with. Here's the news. I'm going to be sued. Brown and Williamson Company manufactures the palm oil cigarettes for a billion bucks, starting with starting when I was 12 years old. I have never chain-smoked anything but unfiltered palm oils. And for many years now, right on the package, Brown and Williamson has promised to kill me. But I am now 81 and a half. Thanks a lot, Dirty Rats. The last thing I ever wanted was to be alive when the three most powerful people on the whole planet would be named Bush, Dick, and Colin. Okay. And this one's, uh, I love you, uh, Madame Librarian, and, you know, I had to read something about librarian, librarians, because I think our stereotypes, obviously, the bun and the hair, and they're not politically active, but librarians are. Okay. Uh, this is from August 6, 2004. I, like most, I, like probably most of you, have seen Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11. Its title is a parody of the title of Ray Bradbury's great science fiction novel, Fahrenheit 451. This temperature, 451 Fahrenheit, is the combustion point, incidentally, of paper, of which books are composed. The hero of Bradbury's novel is a municipal worker whose job is burning books. And on the subject of burning books, I want to congratulate librarians, not famous for their physical strength or their powerful political connections or their great wealth, who, all over this country, have staunchly resisted anti-democratic bullies who have tried to remove certain books from their shelves and have refused to reveal to thug police the names of persons who have checked out those titles. So the America I love still exists, if not in the White House or the Supreme Court or the Senate or the House of Representatives or the media, the America I love still exists in the front desk of our public libraries. And still on the subject of books, our daily sources of news, papers, and TV are now so craven, so indulgent, on behalf of the American people, so uninformative, that only in books can we find out what is really going on. I will cite, for, cite an example. House of Bush, House of Sod by Craig Unger, published near the start of this humiliating, shameful, blood-soaked year. In case you haven't noticed, and as a result of a shamelessly rigged election in Florida, of which thousands of African Americans were arbitrarily disenfranchised, we now uh, present ourselves to the rest of the world as proud, grinning, jet-jawed, pitiless war lovers with appalling, powerful weaponry and unopposed. In case you haven't noticed, we are now almost as feared and hated all over the world as Nazis were, with good reason. In case you haven't noticed, our unelected leaders have dehumanized millions and millions of, of humans being, being simply because of religion and race. We wound and kill them and torture them and imprison them all we want. Piece of cake. In case you haven't noticed, we also dehumanize our soldiers, not because of their race or religion, but because of their low so social class. Send them anywhere, make them do anything. Piece of cake. The O'Reilly factor. So I'm a man without a country, except for the librarians in the Chicago-based magazine you're reading in these times. Before we attacked Iraq, the majestic New York Times guaranteed that they were, there were 
resurrection there. Albert Einstein and Mark Twain gave up on the human race at the end of their lives, even though Twain hadn't even seen World War I. War is now a form of TV and entertainment. And what, and what made World War II so particularly irritating were two American inventions, barbed wire and a machine gun. Shrapnel was invented by an Englishman with the same name. Don't you wish you could have, could have something named after you? Like my distinct letters. Einstein and Twain, I know, oh, I'm sorry, I now am tempted to give up our people too. And as, you, as some of you may know, this is the first time I've surrendered to a pitiless war machine. My last words, life is no way to t- treat an animal, not even a mouse. Um, they, oh, I'm sorry, Napon came from Harvard, Veritas, I'm not like black sucks. Our president is a, is a Christian, but so is Adolf Hitler. What can be said to our young people now that psychopathic personalities, which is to say persons with consciences, without a sense of pity or shame, have taken all their money and the treasures of our government and corporations and made it their own. Children, three my own, and 
children much. It didn't damage us when we, damage us when we were young. It was evil deeds and lying that hurt us. After I said all this, I'm sure you're ready to respond in effect, yes, yes, but it still remains that our responsibility to decide what our books, what books our children are going to be made to read in our community. This is surely so. But it is also true that if you exercise the right and fulfill that responsibility in an arrogant, harsh, un-American manner, then people are entitled to call you bad citizens of gold. Even your own children are entitled to call you that. I read in the newspaper that your community is mystified by the outcry from all over the country about what you have done. Well, you have discovered that Drake is a part of American civilization, and your fellow Americans can't stand it that you have behaved in such an uncivilized way. Perhaps you will learn from this that books are sacred to free men for very good reasons, and that wars have been fought against nations which, which hate books and burn them. If you are an American, you must allow all ideas to circulate freely in your community, not merely your own. If you and your board are now determined to show that you, in fact, have wisdom and maturity when you exercise your powers over the education of our young, then you should acknowledge that it was a rotten lesson you taught young people in a free society when you denounced and then burned books, books you haven't even read. You should also resolve to expose your children to all sorts of opinions and information in order that they will be better equipped to make decisions and survive. Again, you have insulted me, and I am a good citizen, and I am very real. I'm going to continue on with one more excerpt that I think is pretty <laughs> That was seven years ago. There has so far been no reply. At this very moment, as I write in New York City, Slaughterhouse 5 has been banned from school libraries at 50 miles from here. A legal battle begun several years ago rages on. The school board in question has found lawyers eager to attack the First Amendment tooth and nail. There is never a shortage anywhere of lawyers eager to attack the First Amendment, as though it were nothing more than a clause in a lease from a crooked slumlord. At the start of that particular litigation on March 24th of 1976, I wrote a comment for the op-ed page in the Long Island edition of the New York Times. It went like this. The school board has denounced some books again out in Levittown this time. One of the books was mine. I hear about an un-American nonsense like this twice a year or so. One time out in North Dakota, the books were actually burned in a furnace. I had a laugh. It was such an arrogant, dumb, superstitious thing to do. It was so cowardly, too, to make a great show of attacking artifacts. It was like St. George attacking bedspreads and cuckoo clocks. Yes, and St. Georges like that seem to get elected or appointed to school committees all the time. They are actually proud of their illiteracy. They imagine that they are somehow celebrating the bicentennial when they boast, as some did in Levittown, they, that they actually hadn't read the books they banned. Such lunks are often the backbone of volunteer fire departments and the United States Infantry and cake sales and so on. And they have, <laughs> and they have been thanked often enough for that. But they have no business supervising the educations of children in a free society. They are just too bloody stupid. Here's how I propose to end book banning in this country once and for all. Every candidate for school committee should be hooked up to a lie detector and ask this question. Have you read a book from start to finish since high school? Or did you even read a book from start to finish in high school? If the truthful answer is no, then the candidate should be told politely that he cannot get on the school committee and blow up his big bazoo about how books make children crazy. Whenever ideas are squashed in this country, literate lovers of American experiment write carefully, or 
write careful and intricate explanations of why all ideas must be allowed to live. It is time for them to realize that they are attempting to explain America at its bravest and most optimistic to orangutans. From now on, I intend to limit my discourse with dim-witted Savonarellas to this advice. Have somebody read the First Amendment to the United States Constitution out loud to you, you goddamn fool. Well, the American Civil Liberties Union, or somebody like that, will come to the scene of trouble, as they always do. They will explain what the Constitution is and to whom it applies. They will win. And there will be millions who are bewildered and heartbroken by the legal victory who think something should never be, never be said, especially about religion. They are in the wrong place at the wrong time. High up.
The German Empire allied with the Turks sent impassive military observers to evaluate the century's first genocide, a word which did not exist in any language then. The word is now understood everywhere to mean a carefully planned effort to kill every member, be it man, woman, or child, of a perceived subfamily of the human race. The problems presented by such ambitious projects are purely industrial. How to kill that many big, resourceful animals cheaply and quickly, make sure that nobody gets away, and dispose of the mountains of meat and bones afterwards. The Turks, in their pioneering effort, had neither the aptitude for the really big business nor the specialized machinery required. The Germans would exhibit both par excellence only one quarter of a century later. The Turks simply took all the Armenians they could find in their home for places of work or refreshment or play or worship or education or whatever, marched them out into the countryside and kept them away from food and water and shelter, and shot and bashed them and so on until they all appeared to be dead. It was up to the dogs and vultures and rodents and so on and finally worms to clean up the mess afterwards. My mother, who wasn't yet my mother, only pretended to be dead in one of the corpses. My father, who wasn't yet her husband, hid in the shit and piss of the crib behind the schoolhouse where he was a teacher when the soldiers came. The school day was over and my father to be was all alone in the schoolhouse writing poetry, he told me one time. Then he heard the soldiers coming and understood what they meant to do. Father never saw or heard the actual killing. For him, the stillness of the village, of which he was the only inhabitant at nightfall, covered with shit and piss, was his most terrible memory of the massacre. Although my mother's memories from the old world were more gruesome than my father's, since she was right there in the killing fields, she somehow managed to put the massacre behind her and find much to like in the United States and to daydream about a future here. My father never did. I am a widower. My wife, Nate Edith Taft, who was my second such, died two years ago. She left me this 19-room house on the waterfront of East Hampton, Long Island, which had been in her Anglo-Saxon family from Cincinnati, Ohio, for three generations. Her ancestors surely never expected it to fall into the hands of a man with, with a name as exotic as Rabo Karabekian. If they haunt this place, they do it with such Episcopalian good manners that no one has so far noticed them. If I were to come upon the spook of one of them on the grand staircase, and he or she indicated that I had no rights to this house, I would say this to him or her. Bring the Statue of Liberty. Dear Edith and I were happily married for 20 years. She was a grandniece of William Howard Taft, the 27th President of the United States and the 10th Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. She was the widow of a Cincinnati sportsman and investment banker named Richard Fairbanks, Jr., himself descended from Charles Warren Fairbanks, a United States Senator from Indiana, and then Vice President under Theodore Roosevelt. We came to know each other long before her husband died when I persuaded her, and him too, although this was her property, not his, to rent their unused potato barn to me for a studio. They had never been potato farmers, of course. They had simply bought land from a farmer next door to the north, away from the beach, in order to keep it from being developed. With it had come the potato barn. Edith and I did not come to know each other well until after her husband died and my first wife, Dorothy, and my two sons, Terry and Henry, moved out on me. I sold our house, which was in the village of Springs, six miles north of here, and made Edith's barn not only my studio, but my home. That improbable dwelling, incidentally, is visible from the main house where I am writing this now. Edith had no children by her first husband, and she was past childbearing when I transmogrified her from being Mrs. Richard Fairbanks, Jr. into being Mrs. Rabbit Karabeki instead. We were a very tiny family indeed in this great big house with its two tennis courts and swimming pool and its carriage house and its potato barn and its 300 yards of private beach on the open Atlantic Ocean. One might think that my two sons, Terry and Henry Karabekian, whom I named in honor of my closest friend, the late Terry Kitchen, and the artist Terry of Argos Henry Matisse, might enjoy coming here with their families. Terry has two sons of his own now, Henry has a daughter, but they 
short story pieces called Welcome to the Monkey House. If you haven't read this, you should. It's got the first story of this I ever read, which is Harrison Bergeron. I read in junior high school, which is what old folks like me used to call, what's now I guess called middle school, before we decided that people in seventh and eighth grade would be feel bad about themselves by being junior high school students. So it's called Welcome to the Monkey House. <coughs> so Pete Crocker, the sheriff of Barnstable County, which was the whole of Cape Cod, came into the Federal Ethical Suicide Parlor in Hyannis one afternoon, and he told the two six-foot hostesses there that they weren't to be alarmed, but that a notorious nothinghead named Billy the Poet was believed to be headed to the Cape. A nothinghead was a person who refused to take his ethical birth control pills three times a day. The penalty for that was $10,000 and 10 years in jail. This was at a time when the population of Earth was 17 billion human beings. That was far too many mammals that big for a planet that small. The people were virtually packed together like droplets. Droplets are the pulpy little knobs that compose the outside of a raspberry. So the world government was making a two-pronged attack on overpopulation. One pronging was the encouragement of ethical suicide which consisted of going to the nearest suicide parlor and asking a hostess to kill you painlessly while you lay on a barco lounger. The other problem was compulsory ethical birth control. The sheriff told the hostesses, who were pretty tough-minded, highly intelligent girls, that roadblocks were being set up and house-to-house searches were conducted to catch Billy the Poet. The main difficulty was that the police didn't know what he looked like. The few people who had seen him and who had known him for what he was were women. And they disagreed fantastically as to his height, his hair color, his voice, his weight, the color of his skin. I don't need to remind you girls, the sheriff went on, that a nothing head is very sensitive from the waist down. If Billy the Poet somehow slips in here and starts making trouble, one good kick in the right place will do wonders. He was referring to the fact that ethical birth control pills the only legal form of birth control, made people numb from the waist down. Most men said their bottom halves felt like cold iron or balsa wood. Most women said their bottom halves felt like wet cotton or stale ginger ale. The pills were so effective that you could blindfold a man who had taken one, tell him to recite the Gettysburg Address, kick him in the balls while doing it, and he wouldn't miss a syllable. The pills were ethical because they didn't interfere with the person's ability to reproduce, which would have been unnatural and immoral. All the pills did was to take every bit of pleasure out of sex. Thus did science and morals go hand in hand. The two hostesses there in Hyannis were Nancy McLuhan and Mary Kraft. Nancy was a strawberry blonde, Mary was a glossy brunette. Their uniforms were white lipstick, heavy eye makeup, purple body stockings with nothing underneath, and black leather boots. They ran a small operation with only six suicide boots. In a really good week, say the one before Christmas, they might put 60 people to sleep. It was done with a hypodermic syringe. My main message to you girls, said Sheriff Crocker, is that everything's well under control. You can just go about your business there. Didn't you leave out part of your main message? Nancy asked him. I don't get you. I didn't hear you say that he was probably headed straight for us. He shrugged in clumsy innocence. We don't know that for sure. I thought that was all anybody did know about Billy the Poet, that he specializes in defense.
justice is an ethical virgin suicide. Sorry, ethical suicide privilege. Nancy was a virgin. All hostesses were virgins. They also had to hold advanced degrees in psychology and nursing. They also had to be plump and rosy and at least six feet tall. America had changed in many, in many ways, but it had yet to adopt the metric system. Nancy McLuhan was burned up that the sheriff would try to protect her and Mary from the full truth about Billy the Poet, as though they might panic if they heard it. She told the sheriff so. How long do you think a girl would last in the ESS, she said, meaning the Ethical Suicide Service, and she scared that easy. The sheriff took a step backward, pulled in his chin. Not very long, I guess. That's very true, said Nancy, closing the distance between them and offering him a sniff at the edge of her hand, which was poised for a karate chop. All hostesses were expert at judo and karate. If you'd like to find out how helpless we are, just come toward me, pretending you're Billy the Poet. The sheriff shook his head and gave her a glassy smile. I'd rather not. That's the smartest thing you've said all day, said Nancy. Turning her back on him while Mary laughed, we're not scared. We're angry, but we're not even that. He isn't worth that. We're bored. How boring they should come a great distance. She caused all this fuss in order to... She let the sentence die there. It's just too absurd. I'm not, mad, I'm not as mad at him as I am at the women who let him do it to them without a struggle, said Mary, who let him do it and then couldn't tell the police what he looked like. Suicide hostess is at that. Somebody hasn't been keeping up with their karate, said Nancy. It wasn't just Billy the Poet who was attracted to hostesses and ethical suicide parlors. All nothing heads were. Bombed out of their skulls with the sex madness that comes from taking nothing. They thought the white lips and big eyes and a body stocking and boots of a hostess spelled sex, sex, sex. The truth was, of course, that sex was the last thing any hostess ever had in mind. If Billy follows his usual M.O., said the sheriff, he'll study your habits and the neighborhood, and then he'll pick one or the other of you, and he'll send her a dirty poem in the mail. Charming, said Nancy. He's also been known to use the telephone. How brave, said Nancy. Over the sheriff's shoulder, she could see the mailman coming. The blue light went on over the door of a booth for which Nancy was responsible. The person in there wanted something. It was the only booth in use at the time. The sheriff asked her if there was a possibility that the person in there was Billy the Poet. And Nancy said, well, if it is, I can break his neck with my thumb and forefinger. Foxy Grandpa, said Mary, had seen him too. A foxy grandpa was any old man, cute and senile, who quibbled and joked and reminisced for hours before he let a hostess put him to sleep. Nancy groaned, we spent the last two hours trying to decide on the last meal. And then the mailman came in with just one letter. It was addressed to Nancy in smeary pencil. She was splendid with anger and disgust as she opened it, knowing it would be a piece of filth from Billy. She was right. Inside the envelope was a poem. It wasn't an original poem. It was a song from olden days that had taken on new meanings since the numbness of ethical birth control had become universal. It went like this in smeary pencil again. We were walking through the park, abusing statues in the dark. If Sherman's horse can take it, so can you. When Nancy came into the suicide booth to see what he wanted, the foxy grandpa was lying on the mint green barca lounger, where hundreds had died so peacefully over the years. He was studying the menu from the Howard Johnson.
Johnson's next door and beating time to the music coming from the loudspeaker on the one and yellow wall. The room was painted cinder block. There was one barred window in the Venetian blind. There was a Howard Johnson's next door to every ethical suicide parlor and vice versa. The Howard Johnson's had an orange roof and the suicide parlor had a purple roof. But they were both the government. Practically everything was the government. Practically everything was automated, too. Nancy and Mary and the sheriff were lucky to have jobs. Most people didn't. The average citizen moped around home and watched television, which was the government. Every 15 minutes, his television would urge him to vote intelligently or consume intelligently or worship the church of his choice or love his fellow men or obey the laws or pay a call to the nearest ethical suicide parlor and find out how friendly and understanding the hostess could be. The Foxy Grandpa was something of a rarity, since he was marked by old age, was bald, was shaky, had spots on his hands. Most people looked 22, thanks to anti-aging shots they took twice a year. That the old man looked old was proof that the shots had been discovered after his sweet bird of youth had flown. Have we decided on a last supper yet? Nancy asked him. She heard peevishness in her own voice, heard herself betray her exasperation with Billy the poet, her boredom with the old man. She was ashamed, for this was unprofessional to her. The breaded veal cutlet is very good. The old man cocked his head. With the greedy cunning of second childhood, he had caught her being unprofessional, unkind, and he was going to punish her for it. You don't sound very friendly. I thought you were all supposed to be friendly. I thought this was supposed to be a pleasant place to come. I beg your pardon, she said. If I seem unfriendly, it has nothing to do with you. I thought maybe I bored you. No, no, she said gamely, not at all. You certainly know some very interesting history. Among other things, the boxing grandpa claimed to have known J. Edgar Nation, the Grand Rapids druggist who was the father of ethical birth control. Then look like you're interested, he told her. He could get away with that sort of impudence. The thing was, he could leave any time he wanted to, right up to the moment he asked for the needle. And he had to ask for the needle. That was the law. Nancy's art, in the art of every hostess, was to see that volunteers didn't leave, to coax and wheedle and flatter them patiently every step of the way. So Nancy had to sit down there in the booth to pretend to marvel at the freshness of the yarn the man told, a story everybody knew about how J. Edgar Nation happened to experiment with ethical birth control. He didn't have the slightest idea his pills would be taken by human beings so someday, said the Foxy Grandpa. His dream was to introduce morality into the monkey house at the Grand Rapids Zoo. Did you realize that? He inquired severely. No, no, I didn't. That's very interesting. He, is an, he and his 11 kids went to church one Easter, and the day was so nice and the Easter service had been so beautiful and pure that they decided to take a walk to the zoo. And they were just walking on clouds. The scene we described was lifted from a play that was performed on television every Easter. The foxy grandpa shoehorned himself into the scene, had himself chat with the nations just before they got to the monkey house. Good morning, Mr. Nation, I said to him. It certainly is a nice morning. And a good morning to you, Mr. Howard, he said to me. There's nothing like an Easter morning to make a man feel clean and reborn and at one with God's intentions. <coughs> um, Nancy could hear the telephone ringing faintly, naggingly through the 
soundproof door. So we went on to the monkey house together, and what do you think we saw? I can't imagine. Somebody had answered the phone. We saw a monkey playing with his private parts. No. Yes. And J. Edgar Nation was so upset that he went straight home and started developing a pill that would make monkeys in the springtime fit things for a Christian family to see. There was a knock on the door. Yes, said Nancy. Nancy, can I telephone for you? When Nancy came out of the booth, she found the sheriff choking on little squeals of law enforcement delay. The telephone was tapped by agents hidden in the Howard Johnsons. Billy the Poet was believed to be on the line. His call had been traced. Police were already on their way to grab him. Keep him on, keep him on, the sheriff whispered to Nancy, and he gave her the telephone as though it were solid gold. Yes, said Nancy. Nancy McLuhan, said a man. His voice was disguised. He might have been speaking to a kazoo. I'm calling for a mutual friend. Oh, he asked me to deliver a message. I see. It's a poem. All right. Ready? Ready. Nancy could hear sirens screaming in the background of the call. The caller must have heard the sirens too, but he recited the poem without any emotion. It went like this. Soak yourself in Jurgen's lotion. Here comes the one-man population explosion. They got him. Nancy heard it all. The thumping and chumping, the horrible gargling cries. The depression she felt as she hung up was glandular. Her brave body had prepared for a fight that was not to be. The sheriff bounded out of the suicide parlor in such a hurry to see the famous criminal. He felt catch that a sheaf of papers fell from the pocket of his trench coat. Mary picked them up, called after the sheriff. He halted for a moment, said the papers didn't matter anymore, asked her if maybe she would like to come along. There was a flurry between the two girls, with Nancy persuading Mary to go, declaring she had no curiosity about Billy. So Mary left, irreverently, I'm sorry, irrelevantly handing the sheaf to Nancy. The sheaf proved to be photocopies of poems Billy had sent to hostesses in other places. Nancy read the top one. It made much of a peculiar side effect of ethical birth control pills. They not only made people numb, they also made people piss blue. The poem was called, What the Something Had Said to the Suicide Hostess, and it went like this. I did not sow, I did not sin, I'm sorry, I did not sow, I did not spin, and thanks to pills, I did not sin. I loved the crowds, the stink, the noise, and when I peed, I peed turquoise. I ate beneath the roof of orange, swung with progress like a door hinge. Neath purple roof, neath purple roof, I've come today to piss my azure life away. A virgin hostess, death's recruiter, life is cute if you are cuter. Mourned by pecker, purple daughter, all it passed was sky blue water. You never heard that story before about how J. Edgar Nation came to invent ethical birth control? Foxy Grandpa wanted to know. His voice cracked. Never did, lied Nancy. I thought everybody knew that. It was news to me. When he got through with the monkey house, you couldn't tell it from the Michigan Supreme Court. Meanwhile, there was this crisis going on in the United Nations. The people who understood science said people had to quit reproducing so much, and the people who understood morals said society would collapse if people used sex for nothing but pleasure. The foxy grandpa got off his barca lounger, went over to the window, cried 
two slides of the blind apart. There wasn't much to see out there. The view was blocked by the backside of a mocked-up thermometer 20 feet high, which faced the street. It was calibrated in billions of people on Earth from 0 to 20. The make-believe column of liquid was a strip of translucent red plastic. It showed how many people there were on Earth. Very close to the bottom was a black arrow that showed what the scientists thought the population ought to be. The foxy grandpa was looking at the setting sun through that red plastic, and through the blind, too, so that his face was banded with shadows and red. Tell me, he said, when I die, how much will that thermometer go down? A foot? No. An inch? Not quite. You know what the answer is, don't you, he said, and he faced her. The civility had vanished from his voice and eyes. One inch on that thing equals 83,333 people. You knew that, didn't you? That might be true, said Nancy, but that isn't the right way to look at it, in my opinion. He didn't ask her what the right way was, in her opinion. He completed a thought of his own instead. I'll tell you something else that's true. I'm Billy the Poet, and you're a very good-looking woman. With one hand, he drew a snub-nosed revolver from his belt. With the other, he peeled off his bald dome and wrinkled forehead, which proved to be rubber. Now he looked 22. The police will want to know exactly what I look like when this is all over, he told Nancy with a malicious grin. In case you're not good at describing people, and it's surprising how many women aren't, I'm five foot two with eyes of blue with brown hair to my shoulders, a manly elf so full of self, the lady saying smolders. Billy was 10 inches shorter than Nancy was. She had about 40 inches on him. She told him he didn't have a chance, but Nancy was much mistaken. He'd unbolted the bars on the window the night before, and he made her go out the window, then down a manhole that was hidden from the street by the big thermometer. He took her down into the sewers of Hyannis. He knew where he was going. He had a flashlight and a map. Nancy had to go in before the narrow catwalk, her own shadow dancing mockingly in the lead. She tried to guess where they were relative to the real world above. She guessed correctly when they passed under the Howard Johnsons, guessed from the noises she heard. The machinery that processed and served the food there was silent, but so people wouldn't feel too lonesome when eating there, the designers had provided sound effects for the kitchen. It was these Nancy heard, a tape recording of the clashing of silverware and the laughter of Negroes and Puerto Ricans. After that, she was lost. Billy had very little to say to her other than right, or left, don't try anything funny, Juno, or I'll blow your great big fucking head off. Only once did they have anything resembling a conversation. Billy began it and ended it too. What in hell is a girl with hips like yours doing selling that? He asked her from behind. She dared to stop. I can answer that, she told him. She was confident that she could give him an answer that would shrivel him like napalm. But he gave her a shove, offered to blow her fucking head off again. You don't even want to hear my answer, she taunted him. You're afraid to hear it. I never listen to a woman till the pills wear off, sneered Billy. That was his plan, then, to keep her a prisoner for at least eight hours. That was how long it took for the pills to wear off. That's a silly rule. A woman's not a woman till the pills wear off. You certainly managed to make a woman feel like an object rather than a person. Take the pills for that, said Billy. Um, skip ahead a little bit because we're running out of time. 
ethical suicide hostesses who are all now nothing heads along with like Billy. Nancy was taken downstairs and out of the house. She fully expected to be sent down a manhole again. It would be the perfect setting for her violation by Billy, she was thinking, in the sewer. But they took her across the green cement where the grass used to be, then across the yellow cement where the beach used to be, and head on over the blue cement where the harbor used to be. There were 26 yachts that had belonged to various Kennedys sunk up to their water lines in blue cement. It was, the, it was to the most ancient of these yachts, the Marlin, once the property of Joseph P. Kennedy, that they delivered Nancy. It was dawn. Because of the high-rise apartments all around the Kennedy Museum, it would be an hour before any direct sunlight would reach the, reach the microcosm under the geodesic dome. Nancy was escorted as far as the companionway to the forward cabin of the Marlin. The women pantomimed that she was expected to go down the five steps alone. Nancy froze for the moment, and so did the women. And there were two actual statues in the tableau on the bridge. Standing at the wheel was a statue of Frank Wartanen, once skipper of the Marlin. Next to him was his son and first mate, Carly. They weren't paying any attention to poor Nancy. They were staring out the windshield at the blue cement. Nancy, barefoot and wearing a thin white nightgown, descended bravely into the forward cabin, which was a pool of candlelight and pine needle perfume. The companionway hatch was closed and locked behind her. Nancy's emotions and the antique furnishings of the cabin were so complex that Nancy could not at first separate Billy the poet from his surroundings, from all the mahogany and leaded glass. And when she saw him at the far end of the cabin, with his back against the door to the forward cockpit, he was wearing purple silk pajamas with a Russian collar, they were piped in red, and riding across Billy's silken breast was a golden dragon. It was belching fire. Anticlimactically, Billy was wearing glasses. He was holding a book. Nancy poised herself on the next bottom step, took a firm grip on the handholds in the companionway. She bared her teeth, calculated that it would take ten men Billy's size to slodge her. Between them was a great table. Nancy accepted expected the cabin to be dominated by a great bed, possibly in the shape of a swan, but the Marlin was a dago. The cabin was anything but a seraglio. It was about as voluptuous as a lower middle class dining room in Akron, Ohio, around 1910. A candle was on the table, silver and ice bucket, and two glasses, and a quart of champagne. Champagne was illegal as heroin. Billy took off his glasses, gave her a shy, embarrassed smile said, welcome. This is as far as I come. He accepted that. You're very beautiful there. And what am I supposed to say? That you're stunningly handsome? That I feel an overwhelming desire to throw myself into your manly arms? If you wanted to make me happy, that would certainly be the way to do it. He said that humbly. And what about my happiness? The question seemed to puzzle him. Nancy, that's what this is all about. What if my idea of happiness doesn't coincide with yours? And what do you think my idea of happiness is? I'm not going to throw myself into your arms, and I'm not going to drink that poison, and I'm not going to budge from here unless somebody makes me, said Nancy. So I think your idea of happiness is to turn out is going to turn out to be eight people holding me down on the table while you bravely hold a cock pistol to my head and do what you want. That's the way it's going to have to be. So call your friends and get it over with. 
which he did. He didn't hurt her. He deflowered her with a clinical skill she found ghastly. When it was all over, he didn't seem happy or proud. On the contrary, he was terribly depressed. And he said to Nancy, believe me, if there had been any other way. Her reply to this was a face like stone and silent tears of humiliation. His helpers let down a folding bunk from the wall. It was scarcely wider than a bookshelf and hung on chains. Nancy allowed herself to be put to bed in it, and she was alone with Billy the poet again. Maybe she was, like a double bass wedged onto that narrow shelf. She felt like a pitiful thing. A scratchy, war surplus blanket had been tucked in around her. It was her own idea to pull up a corner of the blanket to hide her face. Nancy sensed from sounds what Billy was doing, which wasn't much. He was sitting at the table, sighing occasionally, sniffing occasionally, turning the pages of a book. He lit a cigar, and the sink of it steeped under her blanket. Billy inhaled the cigar and coughed and coughed and coughed. When the coughing died down, Nancy said low Billy through the blanket, You're so strong, so masterful, so healthy. It must be wonderful to be so manly. Billy only sighed at this. I'm not a very typical nothing head, she said. I hated it. Hated everything about it. Billy sniffed, turned the page. I suppose all the other women just loved it. Couldn't get enough of it. Nope. She uncovered her face. What do you mean, nope? They've all been like you. This was enough to make Nancy sit up and stare at it. The women who helped you tonight? What about them? You've done to them what you did to me? He didn't look up from his book. That's right. Then why don't they kill you instead of helping you? Because they understand. And then he added mildly, they're grateful. Nancy got out of bed, came to the table, gripped the edge of the table, leaned close to him, and she said to him, tautly, I am not grateful. You will be. And what could possibly bring about that miracle? Time, said Billy. Billy closed his book, stood up. Nancy was confused by his magnetism. Somehow he was very much in charge again. What you've been through, Nancy, he said, is a typical wedding night for a straight-laced girl of a hundred years ago when everybody was a nothing head. The groom did without helpers because the bride wasn't customarily ready to kill him. Otherwise, the spirit of the occasion was very much the same. These are the pajamas my great-great-grandfather wore on his wedding night in Niagara Falls. According to his diary, his bride cried all that night and threw up twice. But with the passage of time, she became a sexual enthusiast. It was Nancy's turn to reply by not replying. She understood the tale. It frightened her to understand so easily that, from gruesome beginnings, sexual enthusiasm could grow and grow. You're a very typical nothing head, said Billy. If you dare to think about it now, you'll realize that you're angry because I'm such a bad lover and a funny-looking shrimp besides. And what you can't help dreaming about from now on is a really suitable mate for a Juno like yourself. You'll find him, too, Tom, tall and strong and gentle. The nothing head movement is growing by leaps and bounds. But, said Nancy, and she stopped there, she looked out a portal at the rising sun. But what? 
The world is in the mess it is today because of the nothing-headedness of all the times. Don't you see? She was pleading weakly. The world can't afford sex anymore. Of course it can afford sex, said Billy. All it can afford anymore is reproduction. Then why the laws? They're bad laws, said Billy. If you go back through history, you'll find that the people who have been most eager to rule, to make the laws, to enforce the laws, and to tell everybody exactly how God Almighty wants things here on earth, those people have forgiven themselves and their friends for anything and everything. But they have, abs- they have been absolutely disgusted and terrified of the natural sexuality of common men and women. Why this is, I don't know. That is one of the many questions I wish someone would ask the machines. I do know this. The triumph of that sort of disgust and terror is now complete. Almost every man and woman looks and feels like something the cat dragged in. The only sexual beauty that an ordinary human being can see today is in the women who will kill him. Sex is death. There's a short and nasty equation for you. Sex is death. Q-E-D. So you see, Nancy, said Billy, I've spent this night, and many others like it, attempting to restore a certain amount of innocent pleasure to the world, which is poorer in pleasure than it needs to be. Nancy sat down quietly and bowed her head. I'll tell you what my grandfather did on the dawn of his wedding night, said Billy. I don't think I want to hear it. It isn't violent. It's, it's meant to be tender. Maybe that's why I don't want to hear it. He read his bride a poem. Billy took the book from the table, opened it. His diary tells which poem it was. While we are bride and groom, and while we may or may not meet again for many years, I'd like to read this poem to you, to have you know I've loved you. Please, no, I couldn't stand it. All right, I'll leave the book here, with the place marked in case you want to read it later. It's the poem beginning, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being and ideal grace. Billy put a small bottle on top of the book. I'm also leaving you these pills. If you take one a month, you'll never have children. You'll still be a nothing head. And he left. And they all left but Nancy. When Nancy raised her eyes at last to the book and bottle, she saw that there was a label on the bottle. What the label said was this. Welcome to the monkey house.